Welcome to Operation Chris podcast. I'm Luke and I'm the host of today's episode. Operation Chris is an effort from the 957 Project to empower high school students like me to preserve memories of America's veterans and share their stories of courage, resilience, service, and teamwork. Each of these interviews will be donated to the Library of Congress to be preserved for the future generations. And you can hear the other episodes of this show wherever you get your podcast. but be sure to stick around at the end episode to hear the reflect on what I've learned from the following conversation. Today I'm interviewing John Hamilton, a retired Chief Warrant Officer with 24 years of service in the U.S. Army, 22 of those years on active duty on September 11, 2001. Mr. Hampton was a age 64 Apache pilot in the 104th Airborne Division and months after he deployed to Afghanistan. John also served on the Army staff in Washington, D.C., and has flown Army planes on five continents. He has varied civilian aviation experience, serving as an emergency medical services EMS helicopter, cooperate uh, airplane pilots, and now as a pilot for a major airline. John has a bachelor's degree in public administration from Upper Iowa University. His favorite thing in the world is to watch his daughters play high school and club soccer. He is a son of Ray Ford E. Hamilton, a World War II combat infantryman who served in the 10th Mountain Division, WIA in Italy, 1945. Mr. Hamilton is also a co-founder of the 957 Project. Fantastic. Good morning, Luke. Good morning. All right, and let's begin by just talking a little bit about your life before the service. Could you tell me about your childhood or teen years growing up? Sure. So I grew up in Decatur, Alabama. In the 70s and 80s. So do you watch Stranger Things? Yeah. Okay, so my daughter, who's going to turn 17 next week, uh, she tells me that's from the 80s. So um, I was uh, just a typical kid growing up in the 1980s. What I know now is I was very fortunate to grow up in a normal American southern town with... um, Kind of, kind of protected, you know. I don't know if Pineville's like that, but it just seemed like this little bubble of just, just where nothing bad happened. I mean, I'm sure there were things going on that were bad, but I just was very lucky to have uh, a place like that to grow up in, and teachers that cared about me, and good friends and good family. Um, I think I was influenced by my father, who died when I was nine. Um, he was a uh, a game warden so he worked a lot but i and he was a great father but i his impact on me was more not necessarily activities that we did together but the the modeling that he that i saw of him just with this this immense dedication to his job of law enforcement and being a game warden and and being out in the woods and doing 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 the game warden thing um and as far as uh high school you know, I was kind of nerdy. I liked, I liked, uh, I liked aviation and flying and all the normal things that the kids like. You know, I like my hanging out with my friends. I liked some girls. You know, uh, just that was kind of a normal kid. You know, so not nothing too exciting. All right, and you told me uh, you said a little bit about your father and could you tell me if he had him or anybody else had an influence and you joined the service later in your life well it's kind of interesting luke you know my dad uh, like i said passed when i was very young and i don't really think i 
you know, when you're young, there's a lot of things you don't really realize until decades later when you become a father and you start thinking of the influences on your life. And, you know, he probably had this, well, he did, had the, he had this massive influence on me that you can't even begin to imagine um, just by the example and the model he was. And what's, what's really interesting is even though I spent, you know, my entire adult life in the military, I, I'll be, I never, my, so my father, typical of the World War II generation, he was 45 when I was born. So he was a little bit older. And most people my age, they have a grandfather that fought in World War II. Well, I had a father that was in World War II. And typical of that generation, he never, ever talked about it. He never spoke of it. And it's almost so difficult for me to wrap my mind around the fact that this 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 guy from Alabama who grew up in a place more rural than where you live, and I've been to your city, you know, it's he's up from the, the mountains, the sticks, the hollows, and section Alabama that at the young age of 18, he enlisted in the Army and went in the famed 10th Mountain Division and traveled out west and learned how to ski. Which, which growing up in rural Alabama in the 40s and 50s, you know, thinking about skiing is just, you know. It's so he's particularly on your mind. Yeah, and he never talked about it, never mentioned it. And now as I have researched his regiment and his division and what he did, uh, and he was a combat infantryman. He was wounded in action and was uh, in these campaigns in April 1945 that it just – it almost is hard to believe that my father did those things and then came back home, set up his life, and never made mention of it to very many people. I, I know through some people what he did, like some of his game warden buddies have shared with me some stories, and my my older brother. Uh, but yeah, he it was there military influence? You better believe it. Probably more than you could possibly ever imagine, but it was very understated and very quiet. And the kind of influence you would have is a just almost this mythical figure on a young boy. So yeah, but it makes me happy to talk about it. But thanks, thanks for asking about him. Oh, no problem. And I know families oftentimes have strong opinions about kids joining the military. Uh, how'd your mother feel about you joining the military <laughs> with your father's past experience? Well, I've got my mom. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I remember the specific day that I enlisted. And just abruptly, rather abruptly out of college, I'd been going to college for a couple of years and it, and it wasn't well, I'm a, I'm disciplined now, but I, I had just midstream in college. I'm like, this is not working out. I'm wasting people's time. I'm wasting my time. And I kind of like abruptly joined the army, even though I'd kind of, even though my whole life I'd been interested in military service and I'll never forget the day I left the MEPS, the military, no, no, the recruiter station and got on a shuttle van to drive from North Alabama up to Nashville. And I looked over and there was my mom in the parking lot, just wailing, crying, carrying on. And I just was like, oh my goodness. I, could, I had to avert my eyes. I'm like, I can't watch mom crying right now. But that doesn't really represent my mom. My mom was having a moment, but in all honesty, my mother never um express any concern about me going into military she always uh was so supportive because our family and and you know was supportive of anyone that ever went in the service 
And then particularly after September 11th, which I know we'll get into talking about that, I was in an unusual situation where prior to 9-11, I had passed over a promotion and was going to get out of the regular army and go on the active, uh, get out of the active duty, go in the National Guard. So I actually, it's kind of a longest administrative story, but I, I took some steps to, to stay in the army where I could deploy with my unit on after September 11th. And my mother and my grandmother both were very supportive. And I remember one day, I don't, I don't remember the context, but years ago, possibly before I was in the military, we were talking about things worth, worth sacrificing for. And mom, I can't remember her words exactly, but I was just a young person thinking out loud. And, and she said, well, John, you, there are some things that are, are so important that you, you pretty much have to put your money where your mouth is and sacrifice for them. And included in that is, is this idea of America and this country. And, uh, and what I, what I, now years later, what I know that to be is, you know, military service is not just about, it's, it's many things, but ultimately it's about believing in something that's bigger than yourself believing in ideas that, that, that are helpful to others. Um, you know, we talk about this, we used to talk more often about freedom and sacrificing for freedom. And everyone now is so awesome and thanking veterans. But I think what's really important from a, from a young person's perspective as a citizen is to think, what does that really mean? Why am I thanking me or another veteran? And it's because at some point along the line, they made a decision for a number of reasons, but ultimately one of the reasons or one of the things they did is say, look, I'm going to change the entire course of my life to serve in an organization that ultimately serves the nation and protects the freedom of every citizen in this nation. And that's what mom was telling me. Hey, there's some things that are important. So I've been, I was very fortunate to have both my mom and my dad influence how I how I think as a young person uh, a long time ago. And uh, I heard you mention earlier that you took a, a bus from your crew's office to uh, Nashville. What was the, uh, was boot camp what you expected when you got there? Uh, <laughs> you know, it was a it was one of those smallish, but the short bus, right? You know, it was like a yeah. small, yeah. um, basic training in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri was uh, not, it wasn't too hard. It wasn't pleasant at times. And, there were a few days that were pretty miserable, but all in all, it wasn't it wasn't too hard. It, it, it wasn't too hard. What, the one thing that your question reminds me of is is getting up to Nashville, which ironically is where I live now, outside of Nashville. Um, you, they put us up in this hotel just north of town, and and so for a couple, you know, for the that first day, you're actually, I think they swore us in at the Meps. So then you go to a hotel. So you're around all these guys in your civilian clothes, and everybody's got a story. Everybody's telling you how it's going to be, and everybody's like, oh, it's going to be this and that. I just remember I was listening to all these guys, and they were all, you know, these guys didn't know. They were just like me. They were kids sitting there and talking about how terrible it was going to be. And I just remember thinking, man, these guys don't know what they're talking about. This is probably not going to be that bad. And uh, and it wasn't. I mean, there were moments, you know, that that were hard, but it, it wasn't anything that was uh, – too challenging i thought you know and basic training you know and what was the best piece of advice or skill that you learned while at boot camp i'll tell you the best piece of advice i got before i went to basic training was 
Um, <laughs> a buddy of mine whose brother had gone in the military, he goes, John, you're going to have so much fun that you can't even begin to imagine what you're jumping off into. And I thought, well, wow, what does that mean? And what he meant was you are going to experience so many different things, so many different people, so many parts of the country. Every now and then I think back to that and I was like, wow, that, that was good advice. Uh, but the biggest advice operationally is, I read this last night in a book by a major historian, you get out of something what you put into it. That was That's true not only in the Army, but every day of your life, really. So, so when it was a little miserable or boring or whatever, you just you just bore with it and you, you went through the times that didn't seem to be like, why do they want me to do that? You know, it all makes sense in the end. So you get out of it what you put into it. And uh, if it's okay with you, I'd like to transition into discussing your combat service. I noticed you in your bio, you specifically mentioned 9-11s. Uh, sure, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, well, let me ask you a question first, Luke. How did you get picked to do this interview today? Was there any particular, did you volunteer or tell me a little bit about that? And then I'll answer one of your well, questions. Well, she, uh, she just, she gave us all veterans names and then we just picked the names. And then my partner looked at me like that day after we came up with the questions and he's like, I'm switching classes. I'm not doing the interview. I was like, okay. And then I was the only one left. He didn't want to do the interview. No, he got too nervous. He gets real nervous in interviews and stuff. Well, that's understandable. So, well, I appreciate you, uh, you, you, uh, you know, this, this isn't the easiest thing in the world to do. So I appreciate you demonstrating a little bit of <laughs> vigor here and stepping into this. So, so my combat experience, you know, I've got friends that I volunteer with here that gosh, they've got, they've done five year long deployments. Some of them. Um, I mean, we're look, we're talking like cumulatively half a decade of their life over a decade. So my, I look at my combat experience compared to my friends here. Mine's relatively minor. I did two deployments. I did one as Apache pilot in the year, the few, the first few months after September 11th. And then I also deployed to the Middle East as a uh, airplane pilot. And then I guess I realized one of the previous people, the podcast has interviewed, um, I also flew in South America as an airplane pilot for the U.S. Army. Um, I guess, I don't know if you would count those as deployments, but probably it's overseas. So, yeah, so three, uh, a couple of long-term deployments. Uh, you'll find helicopters. Um, after after September 11th, we were, I was in 101st Airborne when it happened, and we deployed. So September 11th, obviously, was in the fall, and we started hearing that our unit may go, parts of our unit may, may go by around Christmas time. And ultimately I ended up deploying on February 20th and was in uh, Afghanistan flying by the end of February, flying helicopters and uh, was over there for, for seven months. And I always tell folks um, it, it was uh, really, it was pretty non-eventful. There were about 45 minutes on March the 2nd, uh, which were kind of interesting. Uh, but I just did the same thing every other Apache pilot was trained to do. I just did my job. And uh, at the end of it, we came home prior to the first anniversary of 9-11. So I know I'm not really giving you a whole lot of, of, of that, but that, that's kind of my combat experience. Yep. 
And I know before beginning this project, I didn't really know a huge amount about the military. Could you give us uh, just like uh, what your simple daily job was in the military, like what you did daily? Sure. Well, it, it varies. It, you know, think about any organization that you would join. You know, when you're a young man, you might start out in the company in the mailroom, and then by the end, you work up and your job looks a lot different 24 years later. But uh, a typical military day, uh, you, you go in and you go in early and you do physical PT, you know, and which is physical training. So you might go to the gym or go run. Um, and then throughout the course of the day, if it's as a pilot, uh, you might fly one, two or three times a week for a couple of hours. Otherwise you're just doing office work. And um, as a military officer, it's one of the interesting things about the army is you don't just go in and soldier. There's, you never know what, what the army has got so many things it's into and, and you never know what you might be asked to do. Um, you might be at, I remember one time in Hawaii, I lived in Hawaii, my first duty assignment for three years and we had the 75th anniversary of the airfield, which was in existence during Pearl Harbor. And we did this big hangar dance for all these guys that were actually pilots at our unit during World War II came back to visit. And we decorated the hangar and we had this big party. And I was like, here I am, I'm a, I'm a pilot in the army and I'm actually planning a big, and it was actually kind of a nice event, you know, I'm. <laughs> you know, and it was fun and it was something like you just never know what you're going to be asked to do or, or you know, even as a I remember some friends of mine in Hawaii, they were flying a helicopter and they had a mechanical problem and they actually had to land the helicopter in a school parking lot there in Honolulu uh, safely, you know, and while they were waiting for I guess the fire truck showed up, you know, no one was hurt. There was nothing nothing untoward to happen but while they did an impromptu tour of the helicopter just kind of like we're doing today the you know the, the school kids come off and they're like well this is the h1 cobra you know and now all of a sudden they're they're talking to young people about the capabilities of the helicopter or or i mean luke i just it's just exciting the so many different things or survival training you might be dumped out in the water in in a flotation gear and you're floating out there and a helicopter comes in and pulls you out out of the water uh to uh you know to practice survival training or i mean i could sit here and go on and on let's say a couple or you might um you know sometimes in the military they might need you to go one there, there are so many things so to give you like a normal day i kind of gave you like a normal boring day but you know, there is so much that you can encounter, you know, over a 24-year period. What's that? You never really know what they're going to ask you to do. Well, you, you kind of do, but you never really know, like, what different phases, what you might end up doing on a particular day. So, but a normal day might look like kind of like, you know, going in the office. But uh, but there are a lot of days that are not normal that you're doing really interesting. And that's not even talk, getting into the going overseas stuff and seeing all the kind of stuff. So there's just no telling. And just to get a little bit further into your service, uh, I know it's in your bio, you've flown in three or four different continents. What was your, uh, what's been your favorite place to fly in? 
Oh man, that's a great question. Okay, so five different continents. Man, that's great. Um, and I was talking specifically about airplanes there, uh, but I will tell you, there's one particular time I flew a helicopter. I flew in Hawaii the first three years of my career, <clears throat> and Luke, I got to tell you, we were so spoiled out there. Even though that's not a big space to go flying in, you're you're in a helicopter, you can fly around the island, but Gosh, we flew over volcanoes. Like, I actually flew over active volcanoes, like in Hawaii. Uh, we flew over, and, and um, probably really weren't supposed to, but I was a young man. And I can say that in this podcast because I was not the senior most person in the, in the formation. So I can't get in trouble because there are other people ahead of me. Um, <clears throat> we flew over water, uh, tropical waterfalls, but one specific thing that stands out to me was a training mission that I did in Washington State, gosh, in 1998. We had taken our Cobras from Hawaii to uh, to Washington to do a deployment readiness exercise, and we unpacked them and were flying around Fort Lewis area. And I remember this one particular evening where we were four, uh, I think there were four Cobras in formation. And I can't recall the name of that river that's right near Seattle, but we're, I'm a typical pilot. I have to fly with my hands. You know, if you, if you see a, a pilot and he starts using his hands, you know, in your mobile story. So we're flying down this river and I'm in the back seat of the Cobra in the front. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm in the last Cobra in the front seat and the sun is setting and Mount Rainier is off in the distance with the snow and the, you know, the sun is sparkling off this, up the snow cap peak and Luke, all of a sudden this American bald Eagle flies between me and the helicopter in front of us. And, and we're kind of in a tight formation already. And the wingspan of that Eagle was so long. It was, it to me appeared as long as the vertical stabilizer on the back part of the helicopter. And I actually, I was flying and I literally, had to bank back so this bald eagle didn't hit, I, we didn't hit this bald eagle with our, our rotor path or our rotor system. And it kind of put the fear of God in me for a second. And my backseater, Scott Mullins, was also it kind of and but he was worried for different reasons than I was. I didn't want to hurt that eagle. I thought, oh my gosh, I almost hurt that American bald eagle. But really, once you think about it, that eagle, if we'd hit him, would have really torn our helicopter up. <laughs> like it would have not been, it's not good to hit birds, huge birds. But on that day, I literally got to soar with an eagle going down a river. And it's one of my, it's my favorite, my all time favorite flying memory. So thanks for, thanks for asking about that. Oh, no problem at all. And yeah, uh, have you flown? Do you get to, do you ever thought about flying? Have you ever flown before? I've never. I've only flown commercially. Do you, do you look out the window, or do you sit there on your phone while you're? Oh, that's no reason. I I pay for the view too. That's why it's so expensive. There you go. That's all right. I hate it, but it drives me crazy to see young people get in that airplane, close that window, and start getting on that phone. And I'm like, gosh, just look out the window. It's the most amazing thing to see. So I that's good to see. Every time, gotta watch this take off and land. Excellent. And I know you've spent 24 years uh, serving our country in various capabilities as we grow up and change and develop our our thinking of life, family, service, and country. 
all that changes with us. So how has your thinking of these topics changed over your years of service in the military? Okay, so let me make sure. So you're asking life, family, service, and country how they've changed? How your ideas on uh, your on family and life have changed over your years in the service. Sorry about that. No, that's a no. I think we all, as we change, we mature and we, you know, if, if we're doing it right, we should get wiser every day we're alive, right? So in one respect, my idea about the country, and I think this is important for young people to know, thankfully, has not changed a whole lot at all from when I was a young man. Uh, when you're young, you have a, a sense of optimism about the possibilities that lie ahead in your life. And I think when I was a young person, things seemed more optimistic growing up in the 80s. And despite all evidence to the contrary, I still feel optimistic about my country because I spend time with people like you. And I see the energy and the optimism because that's what young people are supposed to be like is energetic and optimistic so for my country that's not changed a bit i see a lot of hope and a lot of amazing things ahead for this country i might be the only one but i'm lucky to say in a lot of ways my feelings about the country and service have not changed because if if we're lucky enough to serve an idea bigger than ourselves we're really going to receive benefits from serving others because the only true happiness i think and this is one thing i've learned as i've gotten older the, the only really true happiness you get is when you're doing something for somebody else and you're serving other people and so that's all wrapped up in this idea of service um so i feel very optimistic about our country and about the idea of serving uh, as far as like other things, yeah, I've, just like anybody, family, you know, when you're young, you want to spend time with your friends, you want to have a good time. And then as you get older, you're like, wow, the, the things that are really important were those those moments you had with your, your grandmother or your mom or your your dad. And you want to you want to protect those moments with your own kids and you know that's that's perspective that it takes a long time to try to understand and get till till they're not as round as much as they were you know so super that's a super question though all right and you said earlier that you were uh that you got to serve in washington dc what was your experience like uh during that time oh <laughs> well growing up it's funny i remember the summer before 9 11 i went on my I traveled to D.C. before, but I've always had this love of American history. And, and you know, D.C. is just such a, a beautiful place to go experience our country. And we've got all these these buildings and these monuments that that we like them, not because of how they look, but because of the ideas they represent. And so but I remember prior to 9-11, that summer prior to 9-11, I went to D.C. on a, on a family trip. And uh, I didn't want to go to tour the Pentagon. I was like, ah, I don't want to go to the Pentagon. I'm in the army. I don't need to go over there and see all those bureaucrats and all this stuff. Um, and then 9-11 happened. And all of a sudden, the Pentagon is not just any government building. It's a battlefield. 
You know, it's a place of honor. I mean, it was a place of honor before because people are in there serving their country honorably, doing the hard work of resourcing our military. But now it's also a place where the enemy actually came and 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 injured us. And people responded with battlefield bravery there. And so what I also learned is after I went to D.C. that sometimes it's it's easier and more fun to serve in the field with your friends than it is to come to work every day and do the hard work of writing and thinking and moving money around and resourcing an army. Um, you know, we give a we give a hard time to all the people that live in D.C., all of us in the rest of the country. But what I've found is in the military and I assume in the other parts of government, there are some super dedicated American patriots that go to work every day wanting to wanting to do the hard work of serving serving in that capacity that's not nearly as glamorous as the stuff they make movies about. So I guess that's my big takeaway with with working in DC. All right. Let's uh if you don't mind I'd like to talk about your life after the military. Was it uh easy or hard to retire from the service? Why are you smiling? You you asked me you smiling. There's gotta be a reason. I, I know it's difficult on uh I know it's difficult and it can be easy on some people. Have you got have you got family and friends in the military? I should ask yeah. you that right off. Who's I'll answer that, but tell me who your who your people are. Everybody besides my dad. <laughs> <laughs> Great uncles, grandpa, everybody besides my dad. Well, I tell you, Luke, I always I was just telling a friend this the other day. I actually got to get out of the army twice. And what I mean by that is I did I did eleven years regular active duty then got out right after my first deployment when I went to Afghanistan, became a civilian, went to the National Guard, did that for a couple of years, a few years, then went back with the National Guard, went on permanent federal duty, AGR, Active Guard and Reserve with the Guard, and then, and then retired again at the end of that. The first time I got out of the military, yeah, it was, it was hard because I had just come back from a deployment and I – I let I, I got home from Afghanistan and then like two weeks later I'm a civilian essentially even though I went in the guard. What I uh, what I look back on that period of time and I thought my goodness that was one of the hardest things I ever did in my life and I think I even had there were times where I even had like low level anxiety there are all kinds of things going on in my mind and body. Namely, because I got out of the military after that first deployment and those people that I'm still friends with them all today and like family, they went on to Iraq and I wasn't there with them. I'm I'm in the guard doing some military things, but I thought I really kind of let these people down that I continued on with my tra trajectory of becoming a civilian. And that was really challenging and tough. Um, and so. When I went back in the military. And it was still tough because I, I went back in the military and worked, spent a lot of time in Washington, you know, working in the office. And I still kind of felt like I wasn't with the people that were doing the heavy lifting. You know, I, I still until I kind of wrapped my mind around the fact that, you know, service I read last night in World War II, there were 14 million people in uniform that did not go overseas that were still part of the the greatest generation and we're still part of our military might, but they did not go serve overseas, but they stayed in uniform. I don't know if that number is true or not. I read it in a biography. So everyone has their part and I'm still just honored to serve in some capacity. 
And then the second time after I retired at the 24-year mark, then I'd made my peace, was a lot older, and, and understood a lot more about what it's like for a service member to, to leave the service and uh, deal with things they have to deal with. And I felt a lot better leaving the second time because I, I just came to understand that, you know, um, the first time I got out, I, it was right after deployment where I was a part of a tightly, tightly bound combat unit and it was hard. And then the second time I got out, I was like, eh, everybody I know is alive and well and doing great. And that made it easier too, feeling like my, my brothers, my sisters that I deployed with that everybody had served and they're all, we're all moving on to the next objective in life. And I also learned <clears throat> you have to have, sometimes it's, you know, just being a good, not just, but sometimes it's being so dedicated to your family that you understand that's your major goal in life now is to take care of your family and be there for them. But in addition to that, not only every service person, but every person needs to have a, a purpose and a mission in life that they're, that they're excited about. And once you have that too, that makes transitioning to civilian life a lot easier. And it says right here that you were the co-founder of Project 957. Could you tell us a little bit about how the project came to be? Oh my goodness, we could talk for an hour about that. But I'll, I, 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 I talk. I think Luke, I found a way because I like to talk a lot, and I found a way to just talk to people um, about things, which is helpful. Um, no, no, I'm just joking. The 957 project came about very naturally and kind of just just kind of happened. My, my pal, Peter, he and I were um, living in DC, going to a, a church, Fairfax Community Church. And we were in a, what they call a church small group in, in parts of the country. So there were about 10 of us in this group and all really awesome guys. We're all still friends to this day, even though we've moved on. And Peter uh, is a school teacher and he just happened to ask me to come talk to his class one day. I'd known Pete for about a year and he goes, Hey man, why don't you, uh, would, would you come talk to my class about the service? And I thought, yeah, that might be fun. So after several months, finally got around to doing that. And it just by chance. So I came to his classroom and had a, had a neat interaction with about 15 young people and, I spent some time thinking about what I wanted to tell them. And it was mainly kind of like what we've talked about today is just like, hey, you know, it's important to to grow up and to listen to these lessons they're teaching in this history class because we want you to be a good citizen, you know, as you grow up. It wasn't like a recruiting tool or this. and it wasn't anything like that. I just talked about the idea of service and all my friends who were still serving. That was kind of the gist of the talk. And that also was the day that Peter happened to be teaching about September 11th. So he asked me to stay and talk about my experiences about on 9-11, which is neat because we deployed almost right after 9-11 to Afghanistan. So so we did that. And uh, there was some just neat interactions that day. A week or two later, Peter and I were hanging out one night and talking about this experience and how, how interesting and neat it was. And uh, and we just kind of came up with the idea of of what we are doing now. We just thought it was important, and we thought there were there was a lot of goodness that came out of these discussions. So, and here we are eight years later, and it's uh, 
kind of just now starting to take off and it brought me to your school on September 12th last year and we made some friends along the way that are helping us now to spread that initial experience that happened on that day and uh, now we talk to young people about 9-11 in a way that highlights the courage, resilience, service, and teamwork of that day as opposed to what the perpetrators intended, which was for it to be a day of fear. And so now it's just a unique way to take that day and turn it around and use it for good. So that's how it all started. And I saw in your bio, you had a daughter. What is one thing you'd want your daughter to know about your life in the service? <laughs> I think she already knows it. She's, um, She's on vacation right now. Uh, it's spring break for her. So she's so I'm proud of her. She's actually in London. She's gotten to go to England before I did. Um, I, you know, one thing about me, I'm going to tell you how I how I think and how I feel. And she's gotten a lot of that from me. Uh, but, you know, she's a typical. You know, it's so funny because I go in a room full of young people and all y'all will listen to me. And it's hard for her to listen to me because I'm her dad. But she. I think the one thing that she knows because she's told me that I'm proud of is, uh, you know, she understands this idea of service to the nation, but also on an individual level, she once told me, dad, the, the word that best describes you is loyal. And, and I love that, that she told me that one day just kind of unsolicited because that's the feeling I have towards my country and towards my friends uh, as far as something that she, maybe she doesn't know, I don't know. I've I've told her everything that I can imagine, and maybe she's listened to some of it. But she surprises me in that she, uh, you know, I know she's proud of me and 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 hears everything that I have to say. Did I, re did I answer your question there? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. And is, uh, is there anything else you'd like to hit on before we end the interview? Well, gosh. Um, you know, what, I was thinking about what I've listened to my other veteran friends do podcasts, uh, and I was kind of prepping myself for the questions that I might be asked by you. These have been great questions, and none of the ones I thought I'd be asked. So um, <clears throat> as far as, uh, you know, anything else, I remember one veteran was asked, is there anything he would say to his older self? And I thought, well, gosh, if I'm asked that today, what am I going to say? So I guess I'll take a stab at that. And my answer was something I actually shared with my daughter the other day when she was talking about her grades. And I, I pulled the book out of an astronaut. I, when I was a young person, I wanted to be an astronaut, but I found when I was about your age, and I wasn't the greatest at math, I was better at other things. And I and I told my daughter, I was reading this astronaut book where he was told as a young man, "Hey, look, study, apply yourself. You can you can do this. You can you can really." And I think there were times in my life where I kind of thought, "Man, this is this is." I took I don't I took the easy way out, not in that I'm not a hard worker, but I kind of went more towards the things that I was, I naturally could do easier. And what I know now is if, if I had really pressed in and leaned in on that, on those things that I didn't think I was good at, what I know about myself now is I could have gotten good at it. Like don't ever underestimate your ability 
to master something, if you put in the work and the discipline and, and the time, you can actually do things. And what I know about myself now, as I have demonstrated that if I just lean in on a task and, and quiet my mind and do the hard work of mastering something, then I, then I can do it. As far as though how your life plays out, I have no regrets about it. You know, I, I think everyone is on a path that they're supposed to be on. And like a leader told me once, even the mistakes you make early on in life or your shortcomings, eventually, if you're lucky and fortunate and blessed enough to kind of figure it all out, all those missteps or even failures in the, in the beginning will all add up to your ultimate success. So ultimately what I'll say is work hard, lean in on tasks, but when you fail, and if, if you don't fail, you're not trying. When you do mess up, don't let that deter you because all you gotta do is just keep trying. And in the end, you will get to where you're supposed to be. That's a lot, but that's kind of the only thing I got to add. What else do you have for me, Luke? Uh, I believe I've asked all, asked all I got. I don't really know. Well, that was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for letting me interview. Yeah, and you did great. You did fantastic. Best, inter- best, best podcast interview I've ever done. It's the first one, <laughs> but it's the best. Thanks, Luke. Have a great day. Great job. After participating in the 957 project and getting to interview John Hamilton, it really opened my eyes to there's more than just shooting a gun when it comes to the military. There's thousands of different jobs and hundreds of different things you can do. It was truly amazing to get to hear a veteran's own personal perspective and how he viewed his 20-year career and not learning about this man through CNN or a news or a news company. We got to hear it firsthand, which is truly a different experience, and I'm very thankful for that. Thanks for listening to the Operation Podcast. If you like this episode, be, uh, be sure to subscribe and share. Today's host was myself, Luke Akers, and our guest, Mr. John Hamilton. And the questions were written by me and editing was done by my teachers. Until next time, thank you for having us.